Welcome to the Christchurch London podcast. This is a talk from our Bethnal Green service. To find out about upcoming talks at each of our services, or to listen to other talks, please visit ChristchurchLondon.org. Good evening, everybody. Fantastic to be here. A couple of things just uh, to get us going. Firstly, huge thank you. Uh, to all of you for your partnership and involvement in the offering that we took in March. I've not been here since then. And uh, you may remember that we were praying for £200,000. And uh, we, we announced a few weeks later that we got more than 50, you know, an increase of more than 50% more than what we were going for. It was just the most phenomenal thing. People have been giving since. So there will be another announcement in due course once we sort of think we've hit the final, final, final amount but we wanted to say thank you uh, because of the sacrifice that that represents uh, from uh, no doubt many of you and the sense of partnership as well this city's just too big for any one of us or even any one service to really make more than a little dent but doing it all together we can do so much more so thank you thank you thank you for that um, Ellie Mumford our friend who's, who's part of the council of reference I was talking with her about this she said you know David that sort of sacrificial giving is as much of a miracle as when someone gets prayed and they get healed or something of that sort. So just, just to remind you, you've been part of a miracle. And uh, actually, we've been part of many miracles. Um, but more of that on another occasion. Secondly, I wanted to just acknowledge our debt of gratitude to Rich and Lucy. Uh, We're going to miss them very much as they move down to the south coast. Uh, we love them very much. We think it is right. I mean, they, it was much, obviously, their initiative, but we are supportive of this, and I wanted you to know that. And um, I'm actually meeting with uh, all the worship team, or as many of them as come, at least, on Tuesday night, and I'm told that 70 people have been invited. We've now got 70 people on our worship team across the five services, uh, or five going on six. I'm not quite sure how to express that at the moment with you guys just starting the morning service in these which we're very very excited about as well um but uh that you know those 70 people is is a indicator of the extent of riches ministry amongst us so we're very grateful to him and we're also just to say we're excited about the future and uh, we've been just thrilled to see all the worship leaders that god has been raising up uh, in this service you are very rich indeed I won't embarrass people by starting to name them, but you are very rich, and I think you know that. Not just with good musicians, that's one thing, but good musicians who love Jesus very much and have a grace upon them so they can lead the rest of us in worship are priceless. And uh, you, you're rich here, but you're rich across the, we're rich across the services. So uh, I, I said, I don't want to go around calling any of my friends again and saying we need a worship leader from outside Christchurch which is what we've done the last couple of times, I think rightly then. So we're trusting that uh, each of these different roles will be filled by Christchurchers. We're really excited about that, and I think that that will open up some new opportunities for us as well. Uh, one other thing to say just before uh, getting to today's sermon is that on Thursday I'm going down to Salisbury uh, to see a friend of mine who used to be part of Christchurch London. Uh, his name is James. Uh, maybe just a few of you here will remember him and Emily, but James had a promising or potentially glittering career within medicine uh, and he was working <clears throat> here at one of our major hospitals in London 
he and his wife had had a number of children, three or four children quickly. They'd not got enough money to get anywhere in terms of housing, which could uh, give space for so many. And so James said, I felt like I had to, move, I had to leave London. And I felt that was the right thing to do for the sake of my family. But he said, as I went, he said, I had this sense, maybe I'm giving up my opportunity to influence my industry for Jesus. So he moves down to Salisbury. He becomes a doctor in the hospital in Salisbury. And you may remember a year or so ago now, the former Russian agent, uh, Sergei Skripal, and his daughter, Yulia, who were poisoned by Novichok. Well, James ended up leading the team that cared for them. And uh, when we spoke on the phone the other day, he said, David, I'm now the world's leading authority on Novichok. So he said, I've learned now, he said, that the script is not move to the cultural center and stay there and be influential for Jesus. It's listen to the Holy Spirit and do whatever he says, and he'll work out his plan for you and for your life. So I'm going down to Salisbury on Thursday to see James, and we're going to do an interview with the filmmaker who put that video together, and we will show that at the Everything Conference. And that's one of just a whole load of really exciting uh, guests and elements we will have in November. So uh, I don't remember whether we mentioned this bit earlier, but uh, you get 25% off if you book before the end of April. And it's like, I don't know how many days, just a few days left. So uh, everythingconference.org, we'd love to have you there. All right, now to the sermon. And uh, listen, I just feel the need to say before we get going on this sermon, it gets better as it goes along. Uh, I, I don't, I, by which I don't mean that the first bit I've not done very well with, but it, you know, what I mean is, um, well, you'll see. Just buckle in and uh, it gets better. Um, we are in the middle of an anxiety epidemic. And if you uh, read the media and uh, look at books on Amazon and so on, then it is full of these sorts of stories. And behind me will come up some uh, heads of articles and some books uh, that have been published recently in this regard. Now, this has led many of us, I think, to say, why? Why is anxiety such a big thing now and not at other times? And I want to suggest a few reasons as we get going in our latest talk on Jesus, Prince of Peace. The first is our 24-hour news cycle. Now, at one point in time, I would wager that none of us here would probably have known or few of us would have known who was in charge in North Korea and probably would have only had the haziest sense of what was happening in America or Russia. But now we get to hear every intemperate thing that Trump, Putin, and Kim Jong-un say. Now, not only that, but these are three of the most powerful men that history has ever recorded. And they're powerful, not because of the size of their armies or the amount of land that they have control over, though some of them have significant amounts of both, but because of the nuclear weapons that they hold. In our wisdom, we have created now the capacity to destroy the world many times over. And some people at least feel that these three are possibly not the safest hands, or fingers maybe I should say, to have on the button. And of course that can lead to anxiety. Along with that, of course, life online has become increasingly toxic. And people, and it seems that with anonymity, you can say or do say, or people say, all sorts of things they would never say otherwise. I mean, they're 
to say they're downright nasty doesn't quite communicate the potency and the aggression of what is often said online. Now, I trust that none of us here do that. I trust that we engage in a civil way with others. But nonetheless, because for so many of us, we inhabit the online world for so much of our time, it's a bit like being in a war zone. You may have decided you're not going to fire a gun, but you can still be traumatized just by the environment and the levels of aggression that are out there. Of course, too, social media also provides us with constant comparisons with others. Now, I know we know this next bit, but we all fall for it. So just to remind us, social media compares those that we follow's best moments in life with the mundanity of whatever we're doing at that moment in time, hands in the washing up or whatever it is. Now, the mental health consequences of those sorts of comparisons, of course, are now really well documented. And we know how damaging they are. As one commentator said the other day, they said, we have opened Pandora's box and we don't know how to close it. Along with that, we have violence in this city. My sister lives in an area of the city where there were maybe six weeks or so ago, three random knife attacks. So the attacker had no relation with the people that were attacked and had no contact with them previously. Three random knife attacks within 12 hours. Now, as her brother, I know how that felt. I can't imagine how it felt for her and for her young family. I've spoken to Christchurchers who've said, I'm not going out in the evening now because at my tube stations there's been a couple of knifings and I just don't feel safe as a result. None of us, if we talk terrorism, about terrorism, none of us, the debate is not, will there be another attack in this city? The debate is, when and where will that attack be? Now, you'll understand now why I said it will get better. This is where I wanted to start. Uh, if we were to turn from social media and violence to the economy, real wages have largely not grown for 10 years. That is most of your working lives, as if you need me to remind you. <laughs> Some of you won't thank me for reminding you. And at the same time, of course, there has been an asset boom for those who are old enough to already have assets. And what it's done, consequently, has meant that for most of us, such assets are out of reach. For those of us who are raising children, the atrocities we hear on our news feed lead us to a heightened sense of anxiety, whether it's because of our children's long journeys to school or simply being out with friends. The irony, actually, is children have never statistically never been safer than in the 21st century. But somehow that information doesn't affect the anxiety that parents feel. And many of the jobs that we would love to do require a perfect suite of educational qualifications. Plus some really interesting other elements on your CV, plus a slice of luck. And then if you get the jobs, you find yourself in a highly competitive environment which can bring its own slew of anxieties along with it as well. So there's anxiety everywhere. Not only that, but it is contagious. Do you notice that? That when people in your community get anxious, it sort of gets permission to others. 
And even for those of us who are not naturally inclined that way, we find ourselves struggling with anxiety in a way that we wouldn't have done before. Now this, of course, leads to a big question for us as followers of Jesus, which is like, so how should we live? How should you and I live in an age of anxiety? And I want us to look at the Apostle Paul tonight. I want to look at a few words that he says, and then I want to explain why I'm going to these words. Now, the words themselves, as you'll see, I think are really helpful for us. But also, this guy, if there was anyone who would be able to say, I could have really gone under with anxiety, then he would be he would be an example. Now, just before I read it, let me say one other thing. There will be in a crowd this size, some at least, who have got long-term diagnosed mental health um, challenges uh, with anxiety as part of them. And I want to just acknowledge that at, at this sort of early point in the sermon. And I want to say a couple of things. Firstly, I want, I want you to know we love you and we love having you as part of our community. It's a privilege and an honour and we want to do everything we can to support you as we hope you'll support us in our vulnerabilities. Secondly, I hope that what I've got to say this afternoon will help you, but I, un- I acknowledge too and I understand that there are other issues and uh, complications that you have to deal with as well, so I don't want you to feel that I'm just putting something which is oversimplistic on you. But I trust this will be of help to all of us. So here we go, here's what Paul says. Rejoice in the Lord always. I'll say it again, rejoice. Let your gentleness be evident to all. The Lord is near. Don't be anxious about anything, but in every situation, by prayer and petition with thanksgiving, present your request to God. And the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. I've chosen Paul because of all the challenges he went through. And he expresses them. There's an autobiographical passage in 2 Corinthians 11. It's going to go up behind me now. I'm not going to read it, but I will summarize it and describe some of what Paul went through. See if you agree with me that he would be a candidate for anxiety. Paul says he worked much harder than others. He was in prison more frequently, flogged more severely, and faced the risk of death again and again. On top of that, he says that he received 39 lashes on five occasions. Now, the idea of 39 lashes is 40 is meant to kill you. So if it's 39, it just takes you up to the limit. I've no idea what that does to your body or your psychology if that happens on five different occasions. He says he was beaten with rods on three occasions, pelted with stones once, shipwrecked three times, spent 24 hours in the open sea, had been in danger everywhere he'd gone from just about every type of person that he'd ever met. He'd also gone without food, gone without sleep, and even lacked clothing to cover himself with on occasions. And he said that's to say nothing of his pastoral concern for the new young churches that was spreading up around the Mediterranean basin under his ministry. Not only that, but he's writing Philippians in prison. He's almost certainly in Rome, waiting imperial trial. Now, I know that 21st century British prisons are not in good shape, or they're in bad shape, but they're nothing compared with 1st century prisons. In 1st century prisons, there were no meals provided. There was no clean water you could help yourself to. 
you had to trust on friends and family to bring things into you. If they were too busy, you simply went, or they didn't exist where you were in prison, you simply went without. Not only that, but so Paul would have never known when the next meal was coming, and he also knew that whenever trial happened, and he had no influence over when the trial would happen, but when it happened, if it went badly, he would be facing the death penalty as a result. Now, experts say that the most stressful experiences that you and I have are the ones where we have absolutely no control over them. So Paul would be a candidate not just for his biography, but just the very fact he's in prison now and going to be facing uh, jail in due, or facing trial in due course of being someone who, for whom anxiety would have been a big deal. But here's the interesting thing. The commentators who write about Philippians describe Paul not as the most anxious man who's ever existed, but they describe him as the happiest man on earth. How does that work? How does it work that you're facing all the pressures and stresses that Paul is facing, and he can still be described as the happiest of men? Here's what I think Paul would want to say to us this evening. I think he'd want to say this. The resources of the Christian faith are such that we should not expect the anxiety levels of the surrounding world or community to shape our lives. But that actually there's a peace from God that is available for us which can make all the difference. So let's have a look at what he says. And he starts in a really surprising place. I mean, if you're going to talk about anxiety, well, here's where he starts. Rejoice in the Lord always. Paul, I think, starts there because joy as an emotion is such a powerful thing that it can't cohabit with anxiety. You can't be joyful and anxious at the same time. If you get, if you experience God's joy, it's such a powerful thing that it kicks anxiety out of the way. And Paul seems to be saying here that there is a joy that's available that can assist us. Not only is it available, but he says that this joy provides an energy, a life-givingness, if you like, that we can't get other ways. Have you noticed anxiety saps energy? If you're anxious, it's hard to throw yourself at a problem. Joy gives energy. And one of my favorite Old Testament stories is Nehemiah. Fifth century BC, gone to Jerusalem. He says, I'm going to build the walls back up. But it's anxiety-inducing stuff. He has to work 24 hours a day to get it done. Now, who knows that we're all more vulnerable to anxiety if we're tired? Not only that, but we're told that Nehemiah's sort of team or people have got a sword in one hand and a trowel in the other. A trowel to build the wall and a sword because they're facing physical danger at the same time. So they're working 24 hours a day, they're facing physical danger and their critics come and say, you do not stand a chance. You have embarked on something way too big for you. And yet Nehemiah gets the wall up. How does he do it? What are the resources available for you when you're facing projects that are likely to make you feel anxious? Well, Nehemiah's answer is this. He says, the joy of the Lord is our strength. 
It was somehow that in that they, they received God's joy and it powered them forwards. And we also find that joy is not only available to combat anxiety. I won't ask for a show of hands here, but how many of us at the moment are facing a tough time? We've got challenges. We're getting squeezed in one way or another. Well, James says that if you're in that sort of situation, there is pure joy available. Consider it, he says, pure joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you face trials of many kinds. Jesus also said there's joy available when we're persecuted. Now, that may not be too common an experience for us, though globally, of course, now, that's a big deal for Christians. Here's what Jesus said. Blessed are you when, you when people insult you, persecute you, and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad, because great is your reward in heaven. For in the same way, they persecuted the prophets who were before you. When did you last meet a Christian who was being persecuted and they said, I'm full of joy? It's a powerfully countercultural way to live, but not one we typically think about. Paul's saying there's joy available in anxiety, trials, persecution, and difficult projects. So let's have a look at this joy a little bit more. I mean, it begs the question, doesn't it? Well, how do we experience that sort of joy? Let me suggest a few things. To me, the most striking thing here is that Paul makes rejoicing a command. He, says, he just says rejoice. It's not try your hardest to rejoice. It's not if life, you know, if you could manage it, then a bit of joy would help. Go and have a good time. No, he doesn't say that. He says rejoice in the Lord. And I think he anticipated people going, what? Because he repeats it. It's like the Philippians would have, would have sort of double, double checked, really, Paul? And he says, rejoice in the Lord always. And then he says, I will say it again. Now, you repeat it because people didn't believe it the first time. So it's a command. He seems to imply that we can do it if we want to. He seems to suggest that at some level, this is under our own control. We'll come back to that. He defines the joy not as fatalism. Fatalistic joy is eat, drink, for tomorrow we die. It's life is going to be a disaster, so have a good time while you can because it's all going to fall apart. That's fatalism. Neither does Paul suggest the joy that is escapism. Escapism says I'm going to dance the night away and forget my problems. That's not what Paul's suggesting either. He's suggesting something much more substantial and I think something more authentic as well. Because he says we're to rejoice in the Lord. Now to rejoice in the Lord is to change what we're looking at. I guarantee if any of us are struggling with anxiety, we're looking at those things in our mind's eye. That's what I'm focused on. When we rejoice in the Lord, we change our perspective and as we change our perspective, we find an answer to the four big questions we all ask when we're worried and struggling with anxiety. There's four questions, and we find God is the answer to each of them. The first question that we ask when we're anxious is, do I matter? 
when I'm anxious, I feel like I am sidelined on the outside or the, as an outlier on history. Nobody else really knows what's going on, but I am struggling. Do I matter? What does Jesus say? Jesus says, do not be anxious about anything, for I know every hair on your head. I know every detail about who you are and the situation that you're going through. You are the focus, the focus of my attention and energy and love right now. Now, when we start to look at he cares for me rather than I'm insignificant and do not matter, it starts to affect the way that we feel. Second question is this. Can I cope? Is this situation going to end up be overwhelming for me? Paul writes on another occasion, he says, God will never take you to a point that is beyond the resources he has available. He will always give you what you need. Can I cope with the Lord? Yes. When you rejoice in the Lord, you change your perspective. You find there is help there. Do I matter? Can I cope? Thirdly, how's it going to end up? Is it all going to be a terrible disaster? Well, as we focus on the Lord, we find, listen, whatever will happen immediately, and it's not like just an immediate answer. I don't know that anyone here ran the marathon this morning, but if you did, you know, the, you, maybe you get anxious, you're running around, you pray, Lord, may I win? <laughs> or for some of us, may I get round? Well, what he does is he takes us to a different, a higher perspective. The perspective is this. He will ensure that everything that he intends to do in your life will be accomplished. None of it will fall by the wayside. He will get everything done. And there will come a day when there'll be no suffering, sadness, brokenheartedness, suffering, poverty, or injustice. And so as we change our perspective, we find I matter... I can cope. It will not end in disaster. And the fourth question is, why is this happening? You ever felt that when you've been in trouble? This makes no sense. Now, Paul could very much have said that with being in prison. Actually, he says in, in, the, in chapter one, he makes it clear that he has found a reason, a perspective. God has given him a perspective which says, no, you're being in chains does matter. It does have a purpose. The purpose, Paul says, is this. He said, it's really actually rather great that I'm in prison. Because he said, the first thing is now the whole palace, the whole of Caesar's palace know that I'm here for the sake of the gospel. Secondly, it's given other believers confidence. It's an interesting comment on persecution. Where leaders stand strong, even if they go to prison, it gives strength to others as well. And thirdly, he said, the gospel's going forward. So they said, it's absolutely fantastic. Whole palace knows, everyone's more confident and the gospel's going forward. So it's just win-win as far as I'm concerned. Now I understand that when life is hard, sometimes we only find the purpose looking backwards. It's hard to work out at the time. But I don't know about you, I follow a God who loves me and who does have a global purpose as well as individual purposes and he will work it out.
Now, as we rejoice in the Lord, we stop looking at our anxieties, we find he's the answer to all those, all those questions. Do I matter? Can I cope? How is it going to end up? And why is this happening? And as this becomes evident, it does become clear that Paul is saying we can choose what we think. We don't have to be a victim to the thoughts that come into our minds. Here's how the English poet and writer John Milton put it. He said, the mind is its own place and in itself can make a heaven of hell or a hell of heaven. The mind is its own place and in itself it can make a heaven of hell or a hell of heaven. In other words, he's saying there is a perspective, even when life is going brilliantly, that you can find that makes it all go out to be absolutely terrible. And we all know someone who has that knack. He said there's also the ability that when life is going terribly, there is always the power of the mind to find a way of seeing things which makes it look like heaven, not like hell. I think Milton is agreeing with Paul and he's saying we have power to shape the way that we think. I appreciate it is not easy and it requires time and practice, but it is possible and for me at least it has been life-changing. Now it does take time. I am currently trying to get used to very focal glasses. Now when the optician... Thank you, Jan. That, I take that as a sympathetic laugh, at least. When, um, when I was given them by the optician, they said, it will take you a little while to get used to them. So I wore them for a couple of hours and felt so sick and had such a headache, I just took them off. I thought, this is a disaster. Recently, having left my glasses somewhere, I had no choice but to try them again. And this time, I lasted about three and a half days and had some periods where they were working really well. You have to pursue, you have to keep going with them for your brain to adjust. Now, it's the same with learning to think God's thoughts and not just whatever comes our way. It's not like you decide, okay, tomorrow I'm going to think differently. My alarm goes at seven o'clock. At five past seven, you're like, no, it hasn't worked. I'll give up. <laughs> it actually requires moment by moment and hour by hour monitoring initially because you're changing habits of a lifetime. And though it feels difficult, the optician is thoroughly confident that I will get used to them. And Paul is thoroughly confident that we will get used to thinking from God's perspective rather than simply from our own. We're going to whiz in like about three minutes through the next couple of verses. He says, do not be anxious about anything. So his first command was get positive, rejoice. His second one is don't get negative. Don't be anxious and interestingly, he says, do not be anxious about anything. It's like he's, he's sort of anticipating your, no, 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 but my situation's different. And that word anything is saying, no, it's not. However big your situation is, or however deeply personal it is, it says that we're not to be anxious about anything. And there's no caveats in the Greek. But he says, pray with thanksgiving. It's similar to rejoicing in the Lord. As one friend of mine said, prayer shouldn't be worrying on our knees. 
actually, we should be on our knees, but we should be expressing thanks. Thank you for what you've done. Thank you for your present grace available. And thank you for what you will do. And that, again, it changes our perspective. I'm not looking at anxiety. I'm looking at what the Lord has. So Paul is calling the Philippians to change their perspective, but also to ask, present your prayers and petitions. Now my observation of the English, or I should say the British at least, and given that if you're not British, you're living in the UK and you'll probably get affected by this as we all get affected by anxiety. My observation of the British is we're poor at asking directly for things. You noticed even in our prayers, we sort of walk round. It would be nice, you know, would you mind? It would be absolutely fantastic if. Now, one of my favourite stories in this is blind Bartimaeus. He hears that Jesus is passing by. So what does he do? Try and get to the front? Try and work out a way that is very politically correct and polite to gain Jesus' attention? Uh-uh. Jesus! And Jesus comes and stands in front of him and he looks him in Bartimaeus' blind eyes. But for some reason, Jesus doesn't assume what Bartimaeus needs. You'd have thought, two blind eyes, well, there, there we go, that's number one. Jesus doesn't want to assume that. Maybe it's important for Bartimaeus to say something. So he looks in his eyes. What do you want? No, no airs and graces. I want to see. Do you, does the Lord know what you want? Have you told him? Short, sharp sentences are best. This is what I want. And it's wrapped around a life of sacrifice and worship and all the other things, of course. But we are to pray with thanksgiving. All right, let's see if we can just apply this a little bit. First question in applying this is, is this. How do you think about stress and stressful situations? Or to ask the question slightly differently, do you see yourself as fragile or anti-fragile? Let me explain what I mean. A china plate is fragile. If I had one here and I dropped it on the floor, it would most likely break and it is done. Whatever you try and do to mend it, it's never going to be the same. It's a fragile thing that if one thing happens to it, it's going to be it's not irredeemable. Now, some people think of themselves like that. I'm fragile, and therefore I can't go there. I can't hear this person. We must uninvite that person because I'm too delicate. Now, that's not Paul's understanding of mankind made in the image of God. Paul's understanding is actually that we're anti-fragile. What does that mean? Your muscles are anti-fragile. So your arm muscles, if you work them, they grow strong. If you cause them, and it, of course it, it hurts as you do it. It creates pain, both in the moment of lifting weights and afterwards as well. But you don't freak out because you know it's doing you good. Now, actually, it is the same with stressful situations. 
For you to grow into a mature, strong individual, you need a certain amount of stress in your life. Now, that doesn't mean you always go after it. There are moments and times where we need to retreat. We'll come to that. But I want to encourage you. I mean, Paul was able to say, he said, I've learned what to do. He said, I've learned to be content if I've got everything, and we'd all like everything. But he says, I'm also totally content if I've got nothing at all. That is impressive. So he says, as a result, I can do anything. He said, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Now, most people like to quote that verse, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me, without the first bit, I can be content whether I've got plenty or little. Paul says, you're anti-fragile, you're strong. Do not forget that. Do not forget that in the things that come your way and the things that you face in life. My next question is this. Do you choose what you think about? Do you choose what you think about or do you allow thoughts just to come your way and to sit in your head? Do you make a regular practice of focusing on the realities that God loves you? He'll provide everything you need and work everything out. It changes how you feel. Next question, are you controlling the inputs that shape how you feel? How much screen time do you have? More importantly, what is it that you're consuming? Does it lead to peace? If not... Do you turn it off? Typically, I listen to the news first thing in the morning whilst I'm shaving. Occasionally, I just turn it off because it's making me feel lousy. Now, I believe in being well-informed. If you know me personally, you'll know that's very important to me. But I'm more concerned that I start the day in a good place for God, for me, and for others. And that's my priority. On other occasions, I change the music that's being played. I turn off the film that I've been watching. I change the conversation that I'm part of or simply leave the conversation because it's messing with my head or my heart. Do you do that? I want to encourage you to do that. I want to encourage you not to get caught in, you know, rabbit in headlights. It's all happening. God gives us power to decide and power to put ourselves in situations that are good for us and that cause us to flourish. Will you commit, final question, will you commit to making rejoicing in the Lord a habit in your life so that you become known for joy, not for anxiety? Probably the most significant atheist philosopher in history, probably in European history at least, Frederick Nietzsche died at the end of the 19th century. He said this about Christians. He said, I'd believe their message if they were more joyful. It was like, I've seen the content. Now, if that's true, your life is going to be full of joy. Now, you do not have an opportunity now to make an impression on Frederick Nietzsche. He's gone. But you do have an opportunity with those you share a flat with, with those that you study with, with those that you work with and those that you do life with. I encourage you to be a fountain of life and joy, as well, of course, of honesty. That's another sermon. And finally, the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, 
will guard your heart and your mind in Christ Jesus. I want to finish with this story. And it's the story I have how Paul started the church in Philippi, which he is writing to right now. Paul and Silas pitch up in Philippi and they preach the gospel. They get into big trouble for it. And we get told that they're flogged severely. So imagine open gashes, open wounds on their backs. Then we're told they're put in the inner cell in the jail and their feet are put in shackles. More opportunity for anxiety. Disease? Is my back going to heal in the deepest, darkest part of the dungeons? Am I going to get any food? Who's going to let me out and when? So you would think they'd just spend their time worry-gutting, wouldn't you? We know the story. We're told that at midnight, the whole jail is kept awake because Paul and Silas are rejoicing. We're told that they're singing and praying to the Lord. What are you doing, Paul? He said, I'm putting into practice what I'm teaching everybody else. They're rejoicing, and as they rejoice, there's an earthquake, and the walls of the jail come down, and their shackles open out. Now, my personal conviction is that is that was a historical event. That really did happen. But it's also a powerful analogy. Because when we get caught in anxiety, it's like being in jail. It's like having our feet in shackles. It's hard to move. Things become, little things become mountains. But as we change our perspective and rejoice in the Lord, he cares for me. He'll provide for me. There's a purpose in this. Then we find the walls fall down, the shackles fall off, and we are free. If the sun sets you free, you are free indeed. I wonder whether we could stand together, please, and could the band come back? I want to pray for the peace of God that passes understanding to fall on us. I don't know about you. I could do with some of that. You might like some too. I want to encourage us to open our hearts and just to maybe say quietly to the Lord, I want to learn to think your thoughts. Heavenly Father, we do thank you for all your goodness to us, for all the ways you provide. Come, Holy Spirit. Come, dove of peace. Come, he who reminds us of our righteousness. I can see for a few of us here, we are carrying guilt. The psalmist says, who can ascend the hill of the Lord? Only those with clean hands and a pure heart. And for some of us, we feel our hands are not clean right now. I encourage you, present them to the Lord. Ask him to wash them. Come, Holy Spirit. Come and grant us your peace. Come and garrison and guard us around. Be with us in our going in and our coming out. And may we learn to think your thoughts. And I pray that all of us would be reminded this evening that you care for us. That you'll provide for us. That you'll show us the purpose in all of this. And that we'd know your grace and peace. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.